0: he emerged from the metro at the L'Enfant Plaza station and positioned himself against the wall by a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin, placing the open case at his feet he shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money and swiveled to face the pedestrian traffic and began to play. From this introduction to Gene Weingarten's Washington Post article, you might expect a story about the typical street musician who posts up at our metro stops in order to, to play some songs and make a few bucks. However... The musician who played outside the metro at L'Enfant Plaza was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing one of the most expensive instruments on this earth, playing the prettiest music, some of the prettiest music that's ever been created. Joshua Bell was a child prodigy. And ever since then, he has been receiving the highest accolades and the highest praises Even from his days of puberty, he's received over-the-top praises for his musical abilities. One reviewer said about Joshua Bell that his playing does nothing less than tell human beings why they bother to live. Another composer said that Bell plays like a god. In fact, three days before he appeared at the L'Enfant metro station to play before a rushing crowd, he played at the stately Boston Symphony where each seat commanded $100 per ticket. At that performance, people were so respectful of his artistry that they stifled their coughs until the pauses between his sets so that they didn't interrupt the beauty of his artistry. But for a short time, He humbly took the role of street performer. Joshua Bell's Metro performance was arranged by the Washington Post as a sort of experiment on perception and priorities. Would beauty transcend on the typical morning in Washington, D.C.? In the 45 minutes that he played, exactly 1,097 people passed by only seven people stopped to hang around to take in the performance for at least a minute. Only 27 gave money, most of them on the run. Some of them were flipping pennies to him. And he brought in a whopping total of $32. And this was coming from a man whose talents command $1,000 a minute. That leaves 1,070 people who hurried by the greatness That was within reach. Most didn't even look at him. They just passed by in their hurried existence. And a theme that ran through the article was one of shock. How could a musician so great descend so low and come so close only to find people so unaffected? How could it be? In this section of his letter, the Apostle Paul turns to address the perception and priorities of the church in Philippi. He wants them to work together for the advancement of the gospel, but they are facing some headwinds. And not only this, there is tension and conflict that has begun to build within their community. They're under pressure and they're They're overly concerned about their own affairs and their own interests. So the apostle calls them to harmony. The harmony that is so vital for our gospel partnership. But the apostle knows that the only way that this harmony will be achieved is through humility. The only way to approach that harmony is through humility. In other words, the message of the apostle to the church in philippi and his message to us for this morning is this if we're going to work in harmony then we must work on humility if we're going to work in harmony then we must work on humility there is no harmony without humility and so we begin to work through our text and last week paul engaged the philippians on the theme of citizenship And he called them to live as citizens as they faced external pressures and external conflicts from from attacks from the government and from outside opponents. But in our passage for this morning, he begins to turn a corner. He dealt with the, the issues that they were facing from the outside, but now he turns to the inside and he wants to address the internal conflicts that his friends are facing within their community. He's dealing with internal division. And he begins in verse 1 with a rhetorical device. If there is any. And he frames it up with these conditional clauses. As if to say, if there is any encouragement in Christ, as there is. Right? You could even translate this as, since there is encouragement in Christ. Because you have all of these things, make my joy complete. He's given them the first basis of his call to harmony. Because of all that they have by way of encouragement in Christ. Because of the comfort of his love that is theirs. Because they have the spirit of God dwelling within, working in their midst. Because of the affection and sympathy of Christ and the affection and sympathy of the apostle for his friends. They are to take a particular course of action. And it comes in verses 2 through 4. Complete my joy. Make my joy complete. Paul has already stated that he's going to rejoice. Yes, he's in prison, but he has joy. Because he sees the final chapter of the story. Another conflict in between here and the end of the story is going to deter him. From the joy that that final chapter produces. He has joy, but there's, a, there's yet more fullness to come in his joy. And that's to see his outlook spreading among his friends. Make my joy complete. How can you do that? By being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. You hear unity, right? You hear harmony. Harmony. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but, here's the alternative, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The central drive of what Paul says in these first four verses is that I want you to pursue harmony through humility. And he's clear on what he means by humility. Humility is not just talking yourself down when inwardly you really think you, you're pretty great. Humility is not self-abasement, first and foremost. It's a mindful of the other. It's considering the needs and the interests of the other above oneself. C.S. Lewis says that the humble person will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, Lewis says, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. I think it's a very sobering word from Lewis. Did you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying about humility? It drives so much into what Paul is saying here. The humble person isn't thinking about themselves at all. Because if you're thinking about yourself, if you're trying to be humble and you're thinking about yourself, then what you wind up doing is saying, man, I'm humble. I'm such a humble person. And then you ruin the whole thing. Humility is self-forgetfulness. I'm not concerned about me and my affairs. I'm focused on the needs of the other and serving the other and blessing the other and being present for the other. That's what humility looks like. William Law once said this, because here's the deal. As the apostles laying this thing out, we see that humility is the way to harmony, and that means that pride is the source of all of our divisions. It's pride that is the source of our conflicts, pride at the source of every one of our conflicts. We think more highly of ourselves and we think of ourselves more often than we ought. William Law says this, in case you're not convinced, he says this, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it When other people snub me? How often do I dislike it when people refuse to take notice of me? How often do I dislike it when people stick their nose in my business? How often do I dislike it when people patronize me or show off? Lewis says in another place that one of the reasons why proud people make us so angry is because we're proud people. Who do they think they are to lift themselves up above me? Don't they know how great I am? Don't they know how important I am? Don't they know how credentialed I am? I'm somebody. If we take Paul's communal perspective and apply it to what William Law is saying we could say this if you want to find out how proud you are the easiest way is to ask yourself how easily do I think I can get along without others I don't need anyone else I can run my own life I don't need community nice if you if you're into that kind of thing How easily do I think I can get along without others? Can I think of a time when I said no to my ambitions in order to better love my community? Can you think of the last time? Am I anxious for praise? Do I need people to tell me how great I am? Am I devastated when I am not being praised for the great things that I'm doing And the wonderful person that I am. Am I anxious for praise? How often do I look down my nose at those who don't get it? That's a common phrase these days. They don't get it. They don't get it. There's a way to state that you think someone is mistaken. But to say that they don't get it is to put yourself in a position of superiority. How often do I look down my nose at those who don't get it? Whether it's those who don't get it as it relates to justice or those who don't get it as it relates to politics or those who don't get it as it relates to theology or or those who don't get it as it relates to anything else. How often am I impatient when people oppose me? When I want to do something and people oppose me, how often am I impatient? Why, on God's green earth, would you have any reason to doubt me? Do you know how smart I am? Do you know how insightful and wise I am? These are the, the sub, sub-thoughts. That's the subtext. How often do we resent criticisms? Criticisms. We feel so stung by them. We feel so rocked by them, so devastated by the criticisms. Instead of being able to weigh them and then pray through them, we're absolutely devastated by them. The apostle is going to drive hard into showing his friends that pride is at the source of all their divisions. And what does he do In response to the threat that will shake up and create disunity what does he do he turns to show us how humility can become a more robust reality among us turning into harmony that serves our partnership in the gospel do you see the trajectory the end goal that he wants is partnership in the gospel fruitful partnership in the gospel and he says, what's required for fruitful partnership in the gospel is harmony. And what's required for harmony is humility. But how do I get you to humility? How do I get you to the humble place? How do I get you to the, to the place where you are more concerned about the interests of others than you are about your own interests? How can I get you to the place where you count others more significant than yourselves? He turns to verse 5, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's answer begins right here. And another way to read this or to understand what Paul is saying here is he's saying, have this mindset among you, which is proper for those who are united to Jesus Christ. You have a different kind of mindset, a different kind of outlook that is available to you because you are united to this Jesus. Do you know who you've been united to? And then Paul begins to give us one of the most important passages in all of scripture. This is what we call nosebleed Christology. What he says about Jesus is so lofty. It's so high. His vision of Jesus is so grand. It's like having the nosebleed seeds at the ballgame. He takes you so high. The oxygen is thin up there. That's how high he goes to give you a sense because you will not appreciate what Jesus has done until you come to understand how great he is. You won't understand that he took a quantum leap This wasn't just a demotion. This wasn't just a minor step down. Jesus took a quantum leap down. You are united to this Jesus. He's not just talking about an attitude here. It's more profound than imitation or mimicking Christ, though it's not less than that. He's calling us to live out of our union with Christ. Live out of your union with Christ. This is your identity. You are Jesus people. You are Christians. That was never meant to be a throwaway word. You are the followers of the king who stepped down off of his throne. Do you see where he's going here? Our union with Christ is to produce such humility within us. And here's why. When you are united to Christ, you are confident in your identity. And you don't need to find your identity in what other people think about you. You don't need to find your identity in impressing other people or ascending higher than other people. In fact, because you have this identity, you are free to go lower, downward mobility for the benefit of the other that's true freedom friends if you need to climb and step on people and make a a little bit more money and, and get a little bit more clout in your career if you need to do that you are not free you are in bondage and i don't care how much you talk the language of freedom freedom is not being able to do whatever you want true freedom is living under the constraints of love And that is only available in the gospel where you are loved freely and fully because of somebody else who performed in your place. That is what gives you true freedom, and that's what frees you up from the need to win the argument. That's what frees you up from needing to convince others that you are not small, you're big. This is what frees you up from needing to get even, This is what frees you up from needing to shoot a sharp word at other people. This is what frees you up to be a compelling and powerful testimony to the transforming work of Jesus that actually wins other people in the end. It's that more beautiful, virtuous life that ultimately wins other people to take a look through your lenses that's 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 the way we see portrayed here because here's look at what he's doing look gene weingarten's article his story about joshua bell descending to play the part of street performer is just a faint glimmer of the story that paul tells about christ here is the virtuoso of eternity who received the praise and adoration of countless heavenly beings and yet he humbled himself. He was the child prodigy, the son of God who played like a god because he was God and is God and yet he humbled himself. His person and work tells human beings nothing less than why they bother to live and yet He humbled himself. Verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. Now here's the deal. In the form of God. Morphe. In the form of God. It's a picture of Christ. Seated in. The heavenly symphony before he humbly descends into this world. This places the son of God in the the stately and majestic halls of eternity before the creation of the world. In the form of God is to say everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. All of the majesty, all of the glory, all of the power, all of the attributes, all of the fullness... Everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. But look at what Paul's saying here. This is, the, this is the thing. The humble, self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving that Christ demonstrated on earth was a display of what he was always like. The implication is that, is that self-sacrificing, self-denying, and self-giving are a part of who God is in his essence. The incarnation is not when Jesus began or the Son of God began to be self-giving and self-sacrificing and other-centered. We have an incarnation because that's who he always was. It's not the incarnation that constrains the love of God. It's the love of God that gives us the incarnation. And that's an important point to make. The Son of God did not all of a sudden take this approach at the incarnation. This this is how Christ is revealing God. Christ did not use his divine status for his own advantage. He didn't use his divine status for his own advantage, but for our advantage. Christ viewed Godlikeness essentially as self-giving. That's, what, that's who God is. The Son of God viewed his equality with God not as exempting him from his work of redemptive suffering and death, but as uniquely qualifying him for it. Do you see the difference? How many people say, that is below me? My position is here, and that kind of stuff is below me. Paul is saying, Jesus did not equate his, God, his godness... With as an excuse, he didn't make it an excuse to say that stuff's below me He said this is what uniquely qualifies me to help them They are helpless without me This is what makes me uniquely suited to do the work of redemption He didn't use his superior status as an excuse to get out of the work of suffering for the benefit of the other He didn't use it as an excuse to get out of suffering and blessing the other at his own expense. It was the reason why. It was the reason why. But what did this look like? Verse 7 but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. This is what humility looks like. He made himself nothing. That God, that Savior, that majestic one made himself nothing. The Greek text, there's debate about it. But it literally says he emptied himself he emptied himself and so the question that theologians have asked is of what did he empty himself of what did he empty himself but the answer comes in the very next clause he made himself nothing he emptied himself how by taking now look at what he did he took the form of a servant he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant the incarnation was not a subtraction. It was an addition. He never stopped being who he always was in all of his majesty, and all of his greatness. But he took on. It was veiled. The son of God became what he was not so that you and I could become what we were not. He took on our weakness. He took on our infirmities. He took on our limitations. He took on our sins. He took on our needs and weaknesses. So that we could take on the status of children. So that we could take on righteousness. So that we could belong. So that we could know true acceptance. So that we could know true freedom. He took on the form of a servant. Look, if you're having a hard time grasping it, Think on it like this, nothing changed about the violinist Joshua Bell, but he was veiled. He was veiled. Nothing changed about him. He was the same person playing at the same level, playing the same quality of music. He lost nothing of who he was in the descent, but he took on the likeness of a street performer and he was treated like a street performer. Jesus was still the almighty, eternal God, but he came in humility in order to serve us. He didn't just play the perfect instrument. He was the perfect instrument of our redemption. This makes the story of Joshua Bell just pale in comparison. But Paul goes further. And being found, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's starting form of God, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. He became a human being. And that was low enough, low enough for one like him. But he didn't come as someone who could have been on the cover of GQ he came in the form of a servant that was the lowest rung in in the Greco-Roman culture and not only did he come in the form of a servant he submitted himself to death listen this is remarkable because you might be like what's the big deal great people have died for their ideals in the past People have died for their values in the past, but here's what you need to understand. There's something very unique about the death of Christ, and it's this. Other people, if they die for their ideals or die for their values, they only change the time of their death. They only choose the time of their death because they will die eventually. But Jesus' death was absolutely unique because he chose the fact of his death. He did not have to die. Death can only lay claim on those who are sinners, and he's the one who was without sin he chose the fact of his death it's the low place but it's just another step lower to utter humiliation because it was not the honorable noble death that any roman citizen even the philippians would have enjoyed the honorable death of beheading no he got the most shameful disgraceful death imaginable death on a cross hung up in shame, hung up in abject humiliation. When you see the God from, who comes from that high, from that kind of glory, stoop to this, this depth, it is a stern rebuke to all of our pride and all of our lofty self-estimates. It's a, it's a firm pushback against all of our scratching and climbing to get ahead of others and all of our reticence to serve others because my situation and my needs are more important than you. I don't have time for you because you're not that important. You're not as important as I am. Do you see what Paul is doing? He takes them into the center of the gospel. And he says, you're united to this Jesus. But he doesn't leave Jesus on the cross. He turns the corner. And there's a great promise attached to this. Great promise attached to this willingness to humble yourself. When you are united with Christ and you live the life of humility, taking the low place for the benefit of the other, there's a great promise attached to that, and it's this. Those who humble themselves will be exalted in due time. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. You do not want that. You do not want that. Those who voluntarily humble themselves in identification with Jesus, knowing themselves to be his people, knowing that they are not greater than their master, those will be exalted. And our proof is Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus can truly say to you this morning, friends, that if you humble yourself, the Lord will exalt you. He will lift you up more than any of your own secret selfish ambitions could ever do for you. He will lift you up in due time. And Jesus can truly say that because he's the paradigm. He's the paradigm. And what Paul is doing here is powerful because Paul is quoting From Isaiah 45. He's quoting from Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, this is what he says to his people who are struggling with idolatry that causes friction in the community. They're in exile. They are worried about what is going to happen to them. And this is what the Lord says to them. Isaiah 45, beginning with verse 22. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory And Paul is saying, this is most truly and only spoken from the lips of the Lord Jesus. At his name, what is the name? He is the Lord. When you read Lord all through your Old Testament Bible, it is the Hebrew word. And in the Jewish faith, they do not pronounce the name for reverence. Hashem. They say Adonai, the Lord. But it's his personal name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I said I will be. This is the name of Jesus. He is the Lord of the Old Testament scriptures. This is the highest dignity to be spoken of Jesus. Joshua Bell only got $32 for his humiliation. But Christ will receive the worship of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing on earth, in heaven, under the earth. Everyone is going to bow the knee. It's either going to be a knee bowed in humble adoration that our king has returned and arrived or it's going to be the bowing of the knee in terror that the one that we rejected all our lives is indeed who he said he was. This is the future. The reality of his death and his victorious life provide the resources for our harmony because it leads us to humility. At the end of the article, as I close, Jean Weingarten catches up with one woman who showed up in L'Enfant Plaza Metro Station that morning, and she immediately recognized Joshua Bell. Weingarten caught up with her to interview her, and and, and this this is what she says. This is a quote. She says, It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour and people were not stopping and not even looking and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? And the question for us this morning, friends, is this. Are we even looking at the one who came so humbly for our redemption are we flipping quarters at him through our pride and selfish ambition and disregard for others we will know that our our discipleship is truly shaping up and maturing when we are growing in humility what Jesus are you following which Jesus are you following one made in your own likeness and image who gives warrant and permission for all your selfishness? Or are you following the Jesus of Philippians too, as you humble yourself, knowing you'll be exalted in due time? Humbling yourself to take on the interests and concerns of others, the needs of others, considering others better than yourselves. Simple self-forgetfulness The divisions in your home will die down when you humble yourself. Any divisions that may exist in our community groups will be put in proper perspective and relieved when we humble ourselves. Tension in your marriage when you humble yourself. Any hope to see the beauty of harmony and human relationships will only come about when we humble ourselves. Don't be oblivious to his humble love. Consider his plunge to the depths of humiliation. And then ask yourselves, what does my union with this Jesus demand of me? Amen. Amen.